go to Isaiah 43. And I want to work on one word this evening, and that's the word pardon. I want to work on that word pardon. It talks about forgiveness of sins in Isaiah 43, 25. And let's look at this verse. It says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember thy sins. Now back up to earlier in the chapter, verse number one, but now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass this through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When you walk through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. So this evening, that one word, pardon, we want to work on for just a little while. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that on this evening we're able to gather for fellowship. We pray for the next few moments you speak to all of our hearts. Let your word edify each one of us. And God, we are ever so grateful that you opened our eyes again. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen, amen. Isaiah lived 800 or so years before Jesus was born. And he prophesied a lot to the nation of Israel and to various nations. There are certain things that he speaks of that the other ones don't speak of. When we talk about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and of other chapters, Ezekiel and Jeremiah don't deal with those at all. In fact, Isaiah Because he deals with redemption so often, his book has been called an Old Testament gospel by a lot of people. And Isaiah is frequently cited in the New Testament. Well, in Isaiah 43, as we read, you can see that God, in describing his nature through the man of God, says that he blots out transgression. What is a transgression? That's a sin. That's when we cross the boundaries that God has set for us. To transgress is to go too far with regard to God's commandment or with regard to one of his statutes. If we say somebody has made a trespass, you've seen people that have signs in their yards that say no trespassing. That means you. And so the the no trespassing sign lets us know there is an area that is marked off that belongs to the owner and anybody who's there without an invitation or there when they shouldn't be there is trespassing. So the scripture speaks about trespass. In this regard, in verse 25, If God blots out our transgressions, then that means, of course, Israel has sinned. Uh, What does it mean to blot out? There's a verse in Revelation, I'll just quote it rather than us going there, and the Lord says that if you overcome, I will not blot out your name from the Lamb's book of life. So that tells us that there's an inscription, and there's a book that says Daryl Sutton in that book. 
And that same book has your name in it. If you're born again and love the Lord. But when he was talking to those believers, he made it very plain and he wasn't playing with their emotions and he certainly wasn't teasing them. The ability is there. If you overcome, I won't blot it out. But the reverse is also true. If you don't overcome, I will blot it out. In ancient times, if a person had an inscription that was placed in rock or inscribed in rock, if it was a misspelling, you know, that was pretty hard to deal with. Yeah, but, but they did have ways of dealing with it. And what they did was they had their own form of sandpaper that they would use to grind down the surface where those letters were. And then once they did that, that area was blotted out. And they have found numerous inscriptions where that has occurred. And because of the depression that was made, you could see where someone chiseled something else on the inside. So it's unlike what would happen with a tattoo. If, if, if you have a tattooist that can't spell, you're in trouble. Not that I'm encouraging you to get one anyhow, but I'm just, I'm just saying it does look weird. I've seen a few people with some Latin tattoos, and I wanted to tell them the Latin word was spelt wrong. And, and I've seen people with different words that are on them, and they don't have any idea that the word or the symbol is inaccurately portrayed. When the Lord says in Isaiah 43, verse 25, I am he that blots out the transgressions, he's letting us know there's nobody but him that can do this. Nobody else. The devil can't do it. An angel can't do it. Uh, Back up to verse number 10 and look at what it says. All of you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. So he's magnifying his uniqueness. There's nobody like him. Verse 11, I even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. We can't talk about another Savior. We shouldn't refer to another Savior. The only Savior there is, is the one that we serve. That's it. God is the only one. But if God is able, according to verse 25, to blot out our transgressions, then I should know God has a method for dealing with those transgressions. And in the Old Testament, what was his method? Animal sacrifices. That's how he dealt with some folks' sins. And that's how the forgiveness came to the children of Israel. Let's never forget that every day, six days a week, I should say, the priests offered up sacrifices in the morning and in the afternoon. Those animals' blood that was shed was for Israel's sins, not for the Canaanites. So all the smoke that billowed up in the sky didn't take care of the Hittites' transgressions at all. It only dealt with the sins of those who had a covenant with God. So the Egyptian people were still in trouble. This is important because you and I have a covenant with God and that covenant works for us. It doesn't work for people who don't have the covenant. We've said before that Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for everyone, but it's only effective for the ones that believe. We enter into the covenant 
And the scripture makes this very plain, makes it here plain, verse 25, that he blots out the transgression. So all that I did before I came to God was erased and taken care of. It was done with. Now, let's go to the next chapter in Isaiah 44, and let me say something about verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you shall not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud your sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. What does it mean to redeem? To buy back. See? To buy back. Now we we use that prefix re to refer to something being done again. So if God formed Israel, they were his in creation. He made them. But before he made them, he conceived them. And so once they were created, of course, the clay, as we'll say using Jeremiah's illustration, became marred in the hands of the potter. What disfigured the clay? Sin. And once the sin affected the nation of Israel and they kind of went wayward this way and they went wayward that way, God did not throw away the clay. He didn't throw away the nation. He held on to the nation. And when he forgave them of their sins, he said he blotted it out like a thick cloud. Now, what is the, the, the importance then of a thick cloud? Well, if, if you've ever driven down the highway and let's say the fall and you come upon a fog, isn't it hard to see? You ever driven in fog that was so thick you couldn't see six feet ahead of you? Yeah. And, and if you've ever been in a mountaintop that's high enough where its peak was in a cloud, then you understand it's hard to look around in either direction. What God is saying in verse 22 is, in the manner in which I blotted out your sins, I've obscured them from your sight. You can't even see them anymore. Not even a matter of you having a vision of them. So God wants us to see that once our sins have been dealt with, we should move on. You know. And the beautiful thing about a cloud, of course, we don't have... Uh, strong or our best equilibrium and balance when we're walking around and can't see. So we need to be led by the hand. And that's why the Bible says we go, we walk by faith and not by sight. See, from faith to faith, glory to glory. The Bible in the Old Testament speaks of God's cloud as a glory cloud. And, and in that cloud of glory, in the presence of God, we know our sins have been blotted out. You know, when we forget that our sins have been blotted out whenever we move into an area where the devil wants to take advantage of us. Yep, he likes to whisper in our ear and remind us of everything we've done in the past. Wherever you find a whole lot of distress, you're probably going to find more of the presence of the adversary than you find the presence of God. Wherever you find more discord, strife, you'll find more of the presence of the adversary than the presence of God. And people who are uneasy and can't be settled in themselves in these kind of circumstances are people that the devil takes advantage of. But once I've come to understand the covenant that I'm forgiven, my sins are blotted out in any race, 
then I don't have to deal with the consequences of those sins anymore because in the presence of God, all of that is lost to me. So what are the consequences of some of the sins? Fear, guilt, shame, condemnation. Some people can't bear to look at themselves in the mirror. Some people get angry about their lives. Some people have no self-esteem or self-confidence or self-respect at all because the devil pushes them down all the time saying you're worthless. You are of no value. But I'm saying in the cloud of God, once you forget all of those sins and you move beyond that, then that's when God lifts you up. See, everything changes once you realize that your sins have been dealt with through, through the covenant. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 26, and I'll show this to you in another way. Matthew 26, notice in verse 27, we're talking about communion right now. And it says, Matthew 26, verse 27, he took the cup and gave thanks. So even Jesus showed thanksgiving. Even Jesus had a grateful heart. And he gave it to all of them, saying, drink ye all of it. So I'm assuming that there's one goblet or one little cup or glass or whatever that they passed around. That that, that probably wouldn't be the way you'd want to do this. Because I know there's been a handful of times I've been overseas where they tried that, and I just go ahead and bypass the communion all along, you know, because I I, I see them, they'll have a big deal, and they'll pass it around. Everybody stands up in sort of like a semicircle. And I used to watch. They hand it to you know, an adult. The adult takes their little sip, and they pass it to the next one. That person takes their sip. And, of course, they're turning it the whole time, you know, a couple of inches, so that nobody's lip print is on the other person's lip print. But, of course, when you've got so many people, it's only a matter of time before the lip prints start, you know. Yeah, well... I've also seen it with the little ones. They give it to them little babies, and the babies are so glad to get it. And, of course, their lips are moist and wet. And and so I'd kind of sit there and say, well, you know, I'll do this at another time. Well, this is what the king had with all of them. They shared in it together. So I want you to understand that they obviously felt some kind of kinship. See? Kinship. You'll take communion with your family and you won't even worry sometimes about what kind of germs or whatever you think. Because mom and dad will eat behind the little ones. The little ones certainly will eat behind mom and dad. But in this relationship here in verse 27, the Lord said, drink ye all of it. And here they are partaking of this communion in whatever method they use. Then he says in verse 28, this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for the remission of sins. This is a kind of like quotation from the Old Testament prophets when, you know, they're talking about a new covenant that's going to be established, which certainly is established through Jesus' death. He comes into this world. He bears the cross on the hill. He dies for us. The scripture says our burdens, our heaviness, Our sickness, our disease, our sins were laid on him. The only way we can understand that is by faith. Because that's not something we can add up and count 
and number the types of iniquities that were upon him. But whatever could separate a man or woman from God, whatever could cause pain, he bore it. In our place, that's what he did. Because of that, then, the scripture tells us his blood was shed. Now, John the Baptist was the one that said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's what John said. If he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, then he's the type of the Lamb of God that was slain in the Old Testament for Israel's sins. So John is saying Jesus has now become not merely the type, but the literal fulfillment of everything that took place from going all the way back to the first sacrifices in Abel and Cain's time, all the way up to where Jesus is right now. The temple is still standing, and John the Baptist said, here is the Lamb of God. That's what he said. So Jesus is going to be sacrificed. He's telling them, this cup represents my blood. Imbibe it. That's what he said. Imbibe it. And then you can see, he says in verse 28, which is shared for the remission of sins. Now, the whole idea of imbibing the blood is, is what led some of the disciples in John chapter 6 to walk away from him. Remember, he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And the Bible says some of the disciples started walking that way. Others went that way. And finally, he looked at Peter and them. He said, are you folks going to leave too? And uh, Peter said, well, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, they, they left, the other ones left because they couldn't comprehend the spiritual typology and the figurative meanings that he was using in his speech. When Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches, he wasn't saying I'm vegetation. When he said, I'm the door to the sheepfold, he wasn't saying he was something that swings on a hinge. So to, to listen to what the Lord is saying means we have to have an ear that is different than what we have with our natural senses. So in verse 28 then, which is shared for the remission of sins. Well, then we, we need to consider what is remission. Of course, some margins will say forgiveness. But our word, which mirrors and reflects what is in the Greek, our English word, it comes from a, a Latin word, which means to send again. So there are three aspects to this word remission. Number one is there's a cancellation. Your sins, my sins, are canceled. And when he says in verse 28, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for or because of, on account of, in order to deal with the cancellation of sins. It means they no longer have any power over you. That's what he's talking about. If, if you've ever had a bill and then you pay the bill and then it's stamped paid in full, that's essentially a cancellation. And that, that's an important thing to, to understand. The song says he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. So that's what that's what Jesus did. By climbing up on the cross, cancellation occurred, and his blood is what remitted my sins. Now, the other aspect of remittance has to do with a person refusing to inflict any kind of debt upon a person. 
and not expecting any kind of payment. So once your sins and my sins were forgiven, God's not expecting you to do anything on on the basis of your sin. You can't give him anything anyway that's going to handle your sin. What could we give him? I mean, the works of our hands, all of our righteousness is as filthy what? Rags. Who wants filthy rags? You can't do anything with filthy rags, but throw them away, discard them, maybe wash them. But some rags are so dirty that even after you wash them several times, they're of no value at all. The other aspect of remittance uh, simply has to do with referring the matter or the issue to someone that has the authority to deal with it. So here's the other part. Who else other than the Lord has the authority to deal with sin? Nobody. He's the only one. When we voluntarily accepted Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit was led into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that means that God took all of our iniquities. He had the authority to take them. Got rid of them at all. By the blood, got rid of them all. That's one of the greatest miracles, if you can think about, that your past could be eradicated. Just like it never existed. And even as a Christian, if we do wrong, then our present sin can be dealt with. But just thinking about the past, imagine how good some people feel when they really do pray through and find forgiveness with God and just feels like a whole burden has been lifted from their shoulders. I mean, just there's some people just so tense, so uptight, so angry, so bitter. But then when they finally, truly turn it over to the Lord and give it to the Lord and find forgiveness, you see them break and weep and weep and weep and weep. And when they get up, they feel like they're light on their feet now. The whole world has been lifted from their shoulders and the Lord made it possible for anybody of any ethnicity to come by way of the cross and find this kind of deliverance. Can you say amen? See, so nobody else could create this. No other religion has this. No other faith can ever produce something like this. Let's go now to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Now that I'm a Christian, 1 John 1, verse 7, tells me if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So our best fellowship is going to be in the light of who Christ is, in the light of the gospel. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Well, well, wait a minute. I thought we were already cleansed of sin. Why in the world would I ever need further cleansing? Because Christians aren't perfect. And Christians do wrong. Sometimes we think wrong thoughts. How do I know that? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, When we have, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So again, verse seven, they're the last clause. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses it. What does that mean? That means 2000 years later, the blood has not lost its power. What it did for people in the first century. 
it is capable of doing for people today. What it did for true believers in medieval times. Nothing's changed. He said, well, Pastor, what about people who have really had some terrible, terrible lives and their sins are so numerous and their deeds have been so wicked that I don't think they deserve forgiveness. We don't get to make that choice. And, and whether, we, whether we like it or not, as wicked as some of the worst rulers on this planet have been, if they came to know Jesus Christ and confessed their sins in the end before they drew their last breath. Do you know one drop of Jesus' blood atones for their sins just like for ours? We, we like to believe that the blood works for us, but doesn't work for everybody else. Yeah, and, and we, we like to believe that forgiveness is uh, good so long as it's working for us. But there are a whole lot of people, if we had the opportunity, we'd shut them out. We'd say, now look, you know, on Monday, this is what you did to me. And five years ago, this is what you did, and I'm trying to pull some strings through prayer to keep you out of here. But... The scripture here says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So even as a Christian, I need the blood. I have to have the blood. Can't live without the blood. We overcome by the blood, by the word of his testimony. We overcame by the blood. We're still overcoming by the blood. As long as the blood is necessary and I'm overcoming, that means there are going to be obstacles and challenges I have to face, opportunities for me to yield to sin. If I yield to sin, I transgress. I trespass. But if that happens, I still have an advocate. What's an advocate? A lawyer. Somebody that pleads my case. In, in verse 9, this one here, he's not even charging any money. But here's what he does want. He wants you to confess your sins. Don't try to hide from God what he already sees. Okay? He already knows it's there. I mean, we get down to pray and we're trying to, you know, confess scripture and be strong and act like this. This isn't really bothering me at all. But God's peeping down in your heart. And he says, look, you're confessing all that word. And you know, you're jealous. and You're bitter. If we confess. We confess our sins. Isn't there a scripture in the Bible that says he that confesseth. And forsaketh his sin shall find, anybody know? Mercy. Yeah. So, confession, forsake it, then the mercy of God. Verse 9 then describes the nature of our Lord. He is faithful, full of faith. He believes his blood still works. And he believes if you come to him, you'll be forgiven. Yeah, anybody. That's, that's, what he, that's what he believes. Faithful and just. Notice the word just. doesn't say fair. Because the Bible never ever declares God's going to be fair with you. But he's just. Now, what is fairness? Fairness means every kid gets a ribbon. You know, in the, the race or the contest. Fairness is we're going to grade on the curve. No matter, no matter how bad your grade is, because the, there are these A students that get all the good grades, everybody's going to average out to something that's nice. And I always did like those kind. See, I, did, I did like those kind. But, but with God, it's not like that. 
Because here's what God says. He says, Israel, I formed you. And then he goes on to say, you're the apple of my eye. And scripture says the oracles of God are committed to Israel, not to the Ethiopians, not to the Assyrians. Now, somebody might say that's not fair. It doesn't matter. As far as God's concerned, it's just anybody from any religion, anybody from any ethnicity could leave their background and convert and come under the covenant. Anybody. That's why Jonah was sent to preach to the Assyrians, the first Old Testament missionary that saw genuine revival in a whole city. Everybody turned. So verse nine, he's just to forgive us our sins. What's he doing? Releasing you from your indebtedness. You're free. How am I indebted to God? Well, I'm indebted to God because he has released me from the bondage of that sin and that iniquity. Now, what what why is forgiveness important for me? Because he says, if I don't forgive you, he won't forgive me. So there's this whole vertical thing and this whole horizontal thing. And we forget and we put it in reverse sometimes. We we forget that my relationship with my brother or sister has everything to do with how God's going to interact with me. And if I can't interact with somebody that I see every day correctly, then the one that I don't see every day is not going to interact with me. And the Bible says my prayers can be hindered. That's in Peter. So the Bible says, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. If we don't, our prayers are hindered. Who would have ever thought a prayer could be hindered? Well, God obviously knows it. And since he declares it in his word, we should go out of our way to make sure that we dwell with him according to what the word of God teaches and what we understand about that word and the light that we have in that word. So if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So sinful activity, even as a Christian, perverts our course, leaves a stain on us. What is it we're needing cleansing of? The shame, the guilt. See, We've been all muddied up because of, of our activities. And only the Lord is able to really uh, scrub us and cleanse us. You've probably seen movies or heard stories from ladies that have told when they were physically assaulted by a guy or guys, how afterwards they try to get in the shower and just sit there and just try to scrub it off. Well, a whole lot of hot water and cold water is not going to make a person who's emotionally scarred feel better. However, if God gets involved and the Lord can help that person to see that what has caused this is sin. And if that woman is willing to release that person and forgive that person of that sin, that's where the cleansing occurs. It's difficult. Yeah, it's hard. But sin is destructive. And in every bad relationship, every bad marriage where the memories continually haunt us. So if you've ever been mistreated or somebody hurts you in a bad way, then, then you understand the weight of the memories. Because all, all of that, if you meditate on it and think about it long enough, it can bring depression. It certainly can bring bitterness. Think about it long enough, pretty soon that stuff takes root, and then it, it flourishes and springs up like a plant inside of you, and out of your mouth, and there in your mind, and certainly in your heart, will come all of the fruits 
of unforgiveness. When we forgive, the Lord comes along and cleanses. Yeah. And when he does that, he deals with everything that is uh, still trying to take root and grow in that place. Uh, cleanliness is, is a beautiful thing. And since this is his temple, I think he, he knows how to clean it. Yeah. Now, for us who are not really into that, when it comes to our homes and our vehicles and our yards and stuff like that, I want you to know he's very much into it when it comes to our temple. He cares about how that temple is cleansed, and God doesn't need a maid. He can handle it on his own. We just need to come to him, and as we come to him and believe, he does the rest of the work. Now, let me give you one more. Look at chapter 2, and look here at verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not, that you may not sin. And if any man sin, see the possibility exists, we have an intercessor, a mediator, a lawyer, a barrister, an attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, I like that description of our attorney. He's righteous because you can't say that about all lawyers. I mean, it's, it's sad to say that, but you, you can't say that about all lawyers. In fact, you've, you probably, you know, you know how our system is. person is innocent until they're proven guilty. But even when a person is guilty, they have the right to counsel. And some people who are guilty of heinous crimes, we oftentimes think, why in the world would you defend that person? Gosh, see? You just get angry at the idea that somebody's going to even stand up for this person, defend them, try to get them off and use whatever kind of chicanery they can to, to try to get them off. But here's the thing. God has an attorney for us, and Jesus pleads the case of some of the worst people on the planet. He died on the cross for some of the worst people on the planet. And the people that we have despised and, and thought there is no way on this earth you should ever be allowed into heaven. You ought to burn forever. They ought to build a jail on top of you. See, when we thought like that, then the attorney is at the right hand of the father. And he's saying this, this one is this one. Look, look father, this this one, my blood, you know, shed for this one, too. And if that person believes and think of the good things that happen. So here's Jesus hanging on the cross, and he's between two thieves. Here's a man over here, here's a man over here. There's conversation going on, and the conversations are going like this. Well, I mean, if you, you're really the son of God, why don't you do something? I mean, work some ma magic or something. Get us all down from here. And the other one is saying, well, you really ought to leave him alone. He, he, he's not bothering you. We deserve to be up here, but this man in the middle hadn't done anything to be up here. But... But yet, the one who's speaking up for Christ, he says, well, Lord, could you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? Now, he obviously has heard something about Jesus because he knows there's a kingdom. And if he's saying, remember me, then he knows there's an afterlife. So this man is hanging up here on the cross, and, and he is slowly but surely, if it didn't happen quickly, converting. Because what did Jesus say to him? This day you will be with me in paradise. Now everybody else who, who, who uh, had this man prosecuted for whatever he did, they probably were sitting at home 
quite happy that the thief was hanging on the cross because he was getting exactly what he deserved. They probably didn't even go out there to watch him hanging on the cross. And they surely didn't believe God was going to be accepting of this man, but had no idea about that private conversation taking place. And the Lord said to him today, not tomorrow, but today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, he didn't say that to the other guy. So here, here's a man over here that died to sin. He ended up in the kingdom. Then there's a man over here that died in sin. And then here's the one in the middle who died for sin. And because of the faith this one man had in Christ, his sins were remitted. His sins were blotted out. His sins were forgiven. And this is what it is to have an attorney. No matter how much somebody dislikes you or me, as long as we've got an advocate named Jesus, we can find forgiveness. Yeah. And we can find it over and over and over and over again. And unlike me or you who may grow weary of saying, I forgive you, God doesn't do that. He's just glad we keep coming back. He's glad we keep confessing our sins. And the last thing there in verse 2, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So you can see, as I said earlier, that death is sufficient for all. But it's effective only for those that believe. The propitiation, what is that? It, it takes the wrath of God, appeases it, And that wrath is then removed from the object of scorn. See, God was unhappy with me. There was enmity between me and the king. But now because of Jesus' intercession, because of his mediatorial work, his blood has made it possible for my sins to be dealt with. And the Lord has become that propitiation. He propitiated the wrath of God. And says, not for ours, believers, only, but the whole world. It's a lot of people in that ancient world that didn't know God. And we need to understand that we have a relationship with the king through his son. But the world out there doesn't know it. And that's why Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Tell them about this. Well, Pastor, what about the innocent native in Central Asia that's never heard the gospel and dies in his or her sins? Well, I guess the innocent native doesn't have anything to worry about. They'll go to heaven, punch the card, and make it to heaven. But here's the question you've got to ask yourself. According to Genesis and according to Romans, one man sinned. We were all made sinners. That means if there is an innocent man in Africa or Central Asia that hadn't heard the gospel, we've got to redefine the word innocent. I'm telling you, there is nobody innocent on this planet. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is why we have to tell everyone the good news of Jesus Christ. And in that regard, the Lord is just. There is no one 
that misses heaven and ends up in hell who can point a finger at God and say, you didn't help me to understand. Titus says the grace of God hath appeared unto all men. So I'm telling you behind the scenes, you don't know what God is doing trying to reach people. A dream. See? The heavens declare the glory of God. See? People in the Old Testament didn't know who Jesus Christ was. They put their trace, their faith not in the, the blood of Jesus Christ. They put their faith in the blood of the lambs, the bullocks that were sacrificed. See? In the Old Testament, they had hope. Because they trusted in that blood that it took care of everything it was supposed to take care of. On this side of the cross, we've already received that promise. We have faith that looks back to a cross. That was 2,000 years ago. That's what makes us different than Abraham and Moses. We have a covenant so much better than what they had. Because they looked for something that they never received. We have it. We have it in the book, and we have it in our Savior. Amen? Praise God. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you that your word is so clear that you have clearly dealt with our sins through the cross. I pray, God, there's not a man or woman here that will continually wrestle with condemnation and shame, but would embrace the forgiveness that's available at the cross and we'd walk with our shoulders rolled back over our hips and have confidence. You said boldly, come to the throne of grace. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.